Today, I would like for us to reflect on the biblical teaching of conversion. There are many understandings and misunderstandings about what conversion is. Before we look at some definitions from the scripture, let me ask you to take a moment and answer in your mind the following question. What is conversion to you? When you hear the word conversion, what does it mean to you? Here's what conversion is not. I hope you had a few minutes, a few seconds, to think of some answers in your mind. Here's what conversion is not. It is not a change of religion. It is not a change of denominations. It is not even a change of behavior, such as starting to go to church. Or trying to do good things. Conversion is not even, and, and those of you who are Baptists will like this one. Conversion is not even walking down the aisle or praying the sinner's prayer. Conversion is not merely a decision you make. So, what is then conversion? Well, today I would like for us to reflect on the biblical teaching of conversion. Uh, this sermon is quasi a quasi-topical sermon. For those of you who are visiting us this morning, our regular diet of sermons at Park Hills are expositional sermons, meaning that we go through a book of the Bible. And we just spent about 15 weeks going through the book of 1 Timothy, and next week, we will finish it off. It will be our last sermon next week on the book of Timothy. But today, I would like for us to reflect on the meaning of conversion. A conversion has two significant parts. Response and regeneration. Response and regeneration. Before we look at Scripture, um, let's look at our response to the gospel. Because most of the time when we think of conversion, we think of that which we see. Namely, our response to the gospel. And that is certainly a significant part of conversion. Our response of repentance and faith. Wayne Grudem actually defines conversion in his systematic theology in the following way. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for our salvation. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. And this is true that when we look at how the gospel calls us to respond, it has these two Emphasis these two acts a turning away from our sin and a turning to Christ and a reliance on Christ that He took upon Himself 
our wrath, the God's wrath against us. These two acts are two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They do not go without each other. The turning from sin to Christ is called repentance, and our trust and reliance on Christ for salvation is called faith. A friend, if you are here this morning and are not a Christian, first of all, thank you for being with us. There's no other place where we would want you to be than here. We welcome you, and we're glad you are here. But I want to speak specifically to you this morning, right now, about this unusual news of the gospel which calls us to respond. The gospel is unusual than any other news because other news that you may hear about on TV or on the radio or on the internet typically does not call you to respond. You read it, you acknowledge it, and you move on. You're a little more educated than before. But the gospel is a different kind of news. And one of the differences is the fact that it's a kind of news that calls for you to respond to it. And here's the news of the gospel. The news of the gospel that Christians proclaim begins with the greatness of our God as our creator and king and judge. He created man in his image, but mankind rebelled against our creator and thus triggered upon ourselves the righteous judgment of God. Thus each of us stand guilty before, before a perfect, loving God. Friends, this God loves goodness too much to let evil remain unpunished in the end. He will bring a day when all rebellion, all imperfections will be judged, including ours. But God's love for us was also displayed in providing a substitute that would be judged in our place so that God's wrath against our rebellion would be poured out not on us, but on Christ, on His only begotten Son. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins, and He was resurrected from the dead to prove that He overcame evil, death, and Satan, and he did all that on our behalf. And this Jesus ascended to the Father. And he's now ruling his church from heaven. But one day this Jesus will come again to take to himself the people of God. This good news, however, dear friends, is only good if you respond to it by repentance and faith. The Bible tells us that only those who acknowledge their guilt their rebellion, their sins, their idols, and turn away from them and believe in Jesus as the only salvation. Only those who make this public profession of their faith and repentance, like DJ did earlier, only they will belong to the people of God. Only they will be saved. Friend, if you're hearing this news right now, I want to encourage you, believe it. And respond to it. I want to encourage you to believe that God is our only creator, king, and judge. Believe that we have rebelled against God and deserve God's righteous judgment. Believe that Jesus has taken upon himself 
God's wrath on our behalf. And by responding in faith and repentance, we too can have our sins forgiven and be restored to God. If you'd like to respond to this news, I encourage you at the end of the service, talk to one of the people around you. Or if you have any questions, come and talk to me at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to respond to this news of the gospel. For those of us who have been Christ followers for a while, we have seen people experience this turn to Christ, as we have heard TJ do it today. We often call this turn to Christ, this response, we call it conversion. And it's right. But we must be very cautious of not concluding that conversion is simply a decision. Conversion certainly involves our decision to repent and believe the gospel, but conversion is not merely a decision. There are many Christians who make decisions for Christ who have not been converted. There are many Christians who have made decisions for Christ who have not been converted. Such people may have even become members of churches but remain unconverted. They may even have been taught to be sure of their salvation but remained unconverted. And I want to talk to you today about a man who expected to be qualified to see the kingdom of God. Yet he was surprised to hear Jesus' words about true conversion. Would you open scripture to John chapter 3? We're reading from verse 1 to verse 11. John chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in a chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 921. Let's read together God's word for us. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. 
we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. This morning, let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to give us wisdom to understand it. Lord, we believe that you are among us right now through your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would today bring new life and new birth to any hearer who does not have it. We ask you, O Sovereign Lord, to bring life to those still dead in their sins. For the glory of Christ we pray and for his name. Amen. Well, as we look at this text, I have three headings that will guide our study into God's Word. But before we look at them, please notice a phrase that appears three times in Jesus' response. Notice the phrase, I tell you the truth. Three times. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. This is how Jesus wants us to hear this message. Now let's look at the points Jesus makes. The first point is this. The necessity of a new birth. The necessity of a new birth. Jesus approached by a member of the Jewish council. For those of you not familiar with the Bible very much, uh, this was a Pharisee. Uh, this was a ruling priest. This was like a, a priest of priests. This was a high-level spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. And this man comes to Jesus at night. And he knows a few good things about Jesus. Look at verse 2. He comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, from the signs Jesus made, this priest of priests, if we would call him that way, knew that Jesus was someone who had come from God. Now, this was an important fact for a Jew to recognize because in the Gospel of John, if you keep reading the Gospel of John, time and again Jesus says that the Jews did not believe in him. And they did not believe in the one who sent him. So for Nicodemus to know and acknowledge this fact that the signs of Jesus gave a point that he was sent by God was a significant, important fact. A good thing. A very good thing. But not enough. Jesus changes the conversation pretty quickly to talk about the need of a new birth. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now please, try to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. And imagine the shock he must have felt in hearing the statement, no one, not even I, Nicodemus, an old man, not even I as a Jew, not even I as a ruler of the Jews, as a spiritual leader of the Jewish nation, not even I can enter the kingdom of God without being born again? The predominant impression in Jesus' day was that all Jews would be admitted into that kingdom. So for Nicodemus to hear this new necessity, this new requirement, 
of a new birth was just mind-boggling. It was shocking. What do you mean that someone who's already part of Israel must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God? Here's a first hint of the meaning of conversion. Conversion is not about being religious. Conversion is not about becoming religious. Conversion is not even about appreciating religious things. It's not even about knowing some right things about Jesus. Conversion necessitates a new birth. Don Carson in his commentary says, If Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? In other words, by using this imagery of a new birth, Jesus is saying that not only parts of our beings need to be changed, but our whole nature. It means that there is nothing in us that is not defective. When Jesus says that we must be born again, it means that there's nothing in us that is not defective. Friends, we simply need not just a new facelift, a self-help, or some improvements of our lives. We need a new life. Friends, this means that no matter who you are, young or old, female or male, religious or irreligious, church members or not, we all need to experience the new birth if we are to see the kingdom of God. Nicosima saw the signs, rightly affirmed that Jesus must be sent from God. But friends, to see the mirac miracles is not enough to see the kingdom of God. To acknowledge the power of God, of the kingdom, by seeing the miracles is not enough to grant access into that kingdom. Nicodemus had to be corrected in his expectations for belonging to the reign of God. What about you? What about me? If you consider yourself a Christian, let me ask you, what gives you the assurance that you are one? Are you taking pride in how long you've been a religious person? Are you taking pride in you belonging to a certain denomination or a certain church? Are you taking pride in your moral accomplishments? Baptist, I'm going to speak to you right now. Are you taking pride in the fact that you have made the decision for Christ a long time ago? Or that you pray the sinner's prayer? Or that you know a lot of Bible stuff. I hear this quite often. I just know a lot of Bible stuff. I must be saved. No. Nicodemus knew some good things about Jesus. But it was not enough. That's why, friends, we must examine what exactly gives confidence to us, to our hearts, that we're saved. 
Charles Spurgeon said the following, a wonderful quote. There's a great difference between presumption and full assurance. There's a great difference between presumption and full assurance. Full assurance is reasonable. It is based on solid ground. Presumption takes for granted and with brazen face pronounces that to, that to be its own which it has no right to whatsoever. Be aware, I pray, of presuming that you are saved. If with your heart you trust in Jesus, then you're saved. But if you merely say, I trust in Jesus, it does not save you. If your heart is renewed, if you shall hate the things that once you loved and love the things that once you hated, if you have really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in you, if you be born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there is no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love of God, of prayer, or no work of the Holy Spirit, then your saying, I am saved, is but thine own assertion. And it may delude, but it will never deliver you. Charles Spurgeon reminds us to be careful that our confidence and our assurance of salvation is not just a superficial presumption where we truly have the assurance that the Holy Spirit creates in us. In other words, friends, conversion is not simply a decision for Christ. It's not membership in a church. It's not simply doing good moral deeds. Conversion goes a deeper, a way deeper than these outward signs. Conversion is a change in our most inner being, a change of heart, a change of nature. You know why? Because that's where the root of our problem lies. Our problem is not our outward behavior. Our problems are not our anger, our addictions, our foul language, our immorality. Our problem goes deeper than these outward manifestations and these behaviors. Our problem is the broken, corrupt nature that gives rise to these behaviors. And Jesus wants to make sure that conversion is not just a change of outward behavior. It is a change of the inner nation, of the inner nature. Because our fundamental problem is our corrupt nature that cannot and will not submit itself to God's reign. That's why we must be born again. And the Greek word for again also means from above. In other words, we need a new nature from a different realm. Not from below, but from above. That joyfully acknowledge God's reign and willingly submits to it. This is what we need if we are to see the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us not only of the necessity of the new birth, but also, that's the first point. The second point is, Scripture tells us 
of the human inability to be born again. Scripture tells us not only of the necessity that we must be born again, but also of the human inability to be born again. Now, if you're Nicodemus, how would you have responded to Jesus' claim that you must be born again? What do you mean? Jesus, like many of us, would probably did not get it. Look at verse 4. How can a man be mourned when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, on a first appearance, this objection is very innocent. Here's an old man, and he wants to take Jesus' words very literally. He's like, how, how, how does it work? It doesn't work. But we should not assume that Nicodemus was not an intelligent man or that somehow he was just dumb and not understanding. Uh, Nicodemus was a very intelligent man. After all, he was the guy who was training the priests in Israel. He knew the Old Testament very well. He knew the revelation of God in the Old Testament. And Jesus tells him that. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying in verse 8. You shouldn't be surprised. And then in verse 10 11, Jesus really brings down the reason why Nicodemus didn't get it. He says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus is not an innocent man who simply doesn't get it. But rather, he's an unwilling man to accept the testimony of Jesus. And this is how we must understand his initial objection in verse 4. Nicodemus's crassly literalistic interpre interpretation was a way of trying to dismiss Jesus' command. Friends, have you ever tried to dismiss the commands of God by trying to interpret them overly realistically or overly literalistically and show how absurd they are? And then it was like, yeah, that's definitely absurd. Therefore, the principle doesn't apply. And we typically do that. We do away with that. People do that all the time. One of the examples of that is people look at the Bible verse that says, if your eye makes you sin, take it out. If your hand makes you sin, cut it out. And people say, yeah, Jesus, there's no way Jesus meant that. That's absurd. So by dismissing that, they're actually dismissing the point Jesus is making. People use over-literalistic interpretations as a way to get away from the command of God. And this is what Nicodemus is doing here. But Jesus is pointing out to him, Nicodemus, I am talking to you about another change, about another birth, a spiritual birth. Look at verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. In this explanation, Jesus is not simply clarifying that he's talking about spiritual rebirth, but he's making a more fundamental challenge for us. He's saying that we cannot produce this new birth in us. Only the Spirit of God can bring about this new change. The new birth which the kingdom of God necessitates is not our work, but the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. 
People think that if they do something for God, if they do good works, if they start going to church, start obeying God's commands, if they go down the aisle, if they pray the sinner's prayer, they can trigger the new birth. But Jesus clearly says that even though the new birth is an absolute necessity, it's also a human inability. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? That's, this is key. Friend, no matter of your religious background, Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Orthodox, no matter what background you come from, this is key. New birth is a necessity. But new birth is a human inability. So, so what do we do? If God is giving us a command that we cannot fulfill, where is there any hope for us? Where do we turn? We turn to the third point that Jesus is making in this dialogue with Nicodemus, namely the divine miracle of new birth. We looked at the necessity of the new birth, the human inability of the new birth, but thirdly, at the divine miracle of the new birth. Our only hope is the promise of God's word, that the new birth is a divine miracle brought about by the Spirit of God in our lives whenever His word is proclaimed faithfully and plainly. Look at verse 5. When, Jesus, when Nicodemus says, how can this be? It's impossible for a man to go back and be born again. And Jesus gives the following answer to Nicodemus. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Now earlier when Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again or born from above. Now the second time Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless he is born of water and spirit. Now some people think that the water Jesus is talking about is this water of baptism. But that is not the correct meaning because we have to look back at this phrase water and spirit in the Old Testament. There's only one place in all of the Old Testament where water and spirit are connected together. It is an incredibly important prophecy. It's from Ezekiel 36. Chapters, chapter 36, verse 25 and 28 to 28. Here's what God promises. If you want to read, go home and read Ezekiel 36 and 37, a wonderful place. But it's the only place where Jesus can, or where God connects water and spirit together. Here's what the prophet said, what God said to the prophet. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will pour my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you hear the priority of God's acts of cleansing and renewing prior to Israel's obedience? God is not saying, first you obey my laws and then I will give you new life. <laughs> if I could translate it, this in Baptist language, those of you who are not Baptist, would you forgive me for a few seconds? This is like Jesus saying this, I am not waiting for you to respond 
and then I will give you new life. I'm not waiting for you to come down the aisle and then I'll convert you. I'm not waiting for you to say the sinner's prayer and then I will give you the new birth. God takes the initiative. God brings the life and it's the life and the spirit, the cleansing that God produces through his spirit in us that leads us to respond by obedience through faith and repentance in Christ. Do you see how that works? It's very crucial to understand the way this, this works out. God works first, and it is he who moves us to respond. God takes the initiative to heal Israel by promising cleansing from sins and a new spirit. God will do this not for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of his holy name. All Israel did was to profane God's name among the nations. And God brought the exile, their death as a nation, but also God on his own initiative promised a renewal, a time when God will cleanse the nation from all their idols and give them a new heart. This was God's initiative. And it was this renewal that was the foundation of Israel, Israel's return to God. But how does this come about? How does this renewal come about? Who will trigger it? It is no accident that after God's promise of water and spirit bring, coming down on Israel, the next picture we see in Ezekiel's prophecy is the story of the vision of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet is asked to preach to a valley of dry bones. And God tells the prophet, the valley of dry bones is a picture of the nation of Israel. It is dead. And God asks this prophet to do something unusual, to go to speak to dead bones. And the prophet does. And it is through that speaking to dead bones that the prophet sees the Spirit of God coming and bringing new life to these bones. Just a few weeks ago, I heard an illustration of a professor in seminary who was teaching a class on how to, how to preach, how to do sermons. And the assignment at the end of the semester was the professor asked each of the students to prepare a sermon according to how he taught them. And he told them, I will take you to one of the greatest audiences you will ever get to preach before. Prepare the best sermon you can. So the final day came. The students prepared the sermon. They got together to the classroom. The professor got them in a car, got them out of the campus, drove to town, and parked the car in a graveyard. Got the students out of the car and said, now start preaching. This is going to be your greatest audience. How do you preach to that people? It's the Spirit of God who is a plain, faithful proclamation of God's Word uses that Word which has been proclaimed and brings life to people who have been dead spiritually. That's how it works. And when that life comes into them, they respond. Now, some of them may walk down the aisle. Some of them may respond in a different way. 
Some of them may respond in the middle of a church service. Some of them may respond after the service. Some of them may respond not in a church, but in their own room at home after that word which was sunk into their hearts really gets a hold of them. Conversion is not just a decision we make for Jesus. It's a change, a new life that the Spirit of God brings to us, which enables us to respond to Him. That's how it works. It is through the plain and faithful proclamation of God's Word that the Spirit creates the new birth in those who hear it. 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message. And it's through the plain hearing of God's, the gospel that the Spirit of God works regeneration in us, washing us of our sins and producing faith in us. It is not our creativity, our methods that bring life to God's people. It's not by doing drama or musicals or anything else. Please don't understand, I'm not against doing these other things. I am, however, concerned that we live in a day when people place more confidence in the artistic production of our programs than in the power of God's Word to bring life to His people. What if we spend more energy and more time interceding before God for people's salvation than be consumed with a perfect presentation of our services and programs? This divine miracle of new birth is not only God's work, it's a mysterious work. Jesus compares it with the wind. Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is drawing this analogy between the Spirit's work and the wind. And the point is that the wind cannot be, can neither be controlled nor understood where it starts, where it goes. Now, this is Jesus speaking when the scientific ways of, of meteorology were not really known. The point is, just because the wind was not understood in its origins or destination does not mean that people could not see its effects. We cannot control the wind nor understand the wind, but that does not mean that we cannot witness its power. And the same goes for the Spirit's work. His effects in our lives are undeniable and unmistakable even if we cannot fully understand how he works in us. How does this analogy between the wind and the spirit help us understand the new birth? Just as Ezekiel saw the spirit of God bring life to dead bones, even though the Ezekiel didn't know where the spirit was coming from and where it's going, all he was able to see was the physical manifestation of that new change through the life that was brought in these people. Friends, just because the Spirit of God is mysterious and works mysteriously in us, we should not assume that its effects are not clear and visible. The effects are quite clear and are quite visible. And you may ask, what are the effects? The effects are simply this, repentance and faith. A life of repentance and a life of faith. Not just a decision, not just a one-time deal, an ongoing life of repentance and faith. We must clarify that without the visible effects of repentance and faith, there is no sign of genuine new birth. So people must turn away from their sins. They must rely on Christ for their salvation. They must repent and believe. Yet their response is part of God's mysterious work in their lives. 
All of this brings us to fi some final conclusions. A few implications for us. If the new birth is a necessity, if it is a human inability, but if it's God's miraculous work, what does this mean for us? Friends, it means that we will understand conversion not as a decision, but primarily as a change, a change of nature. We will understand conversion as a change of nature brought about by the Spirit of God. And therefore, when we understand this, we will be weary. Listen to this. We will be weary of assuming that outward response necessarily means inward change. We will not equate automatically or superficially the outward response of a decision by the inward change that is required. And we will be careful to examine and see and look for evidences of God's spirit of a changed nature, not just a superficial profession of words. We also, it also means that we will find our assurance for being a child of God, not by looking back to a decision we've made for Christ a long time ago, but by looking in the present to a life that has been changed now, and it's being changed and continues to walk with God in ongoing repentance and faith. And it finally implies that we, if we understand conversion as a change brought in us by God, there will be less self-confidence in us and more humility in our walk with God in our life as a church. When we struggle with pride, we must be reminded of God's total act of bringing us to life by His grace alone, not by our effort and not by our decision. Friends, this text encourages us to examine our view of conversion. Now, I want to ask you this morning, you've heard that new birth is a necessity. It's an inability, human inability, but it's God's miraculous grace, God's miraculous work in your life. Have you experienced it? If you're not sure about it, it is better for you not to presume that you have than to presume it and then to be surprised on the judgment day of, 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 of the last day of judgment that you have not been saved. If you have questions about this, I encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to someone that brought you to church today or talk to me at the end of the service or one of our deacons. But do not presume easily and lightly that you have been saved. I pray, I pray that God will create this new change in us and that we together will be a display of God's conversion in our lives, of God's glory, of God's gospel, as we together live a life of a new birth. Let us pray.